electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make a little money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me, 1-800-743-CBC. Tweet me at Jim Kramer. Maybe all stocks are too cheap versus what they're worth? That's my reaction to the furious bidding for U.S. Steel with Nippon Steel, the fourth largest steelmaker in the world, bidding $55 per share for this stock that closed at $39 on Friday, one that was a heck of a lot lower before it came up for auction. To me, that's the most salient story from today's relatively sedate action, Dow advancing less than one point, but S&P gaining 0.45%, NASDAQ rising 0.61%. The fact that Wall Street could be so wrong in its judgment of a so-so steel company has more to do with the market's obsession with the Federal Reserve than with U.S. Steel itself. Right now, after the Fed's tightening aggressively, companies like U.S. Steel are supposed to see their earnings collapse. Historically, that is what always happens. In any other year, those rate hikes would have been the death knell for a steel company that isn't exactly known for its state-of-the-art production. But like so many other industrials, U.S. Steel took advantage of super low interest rates during the pandemic to make more itself more resilient ahead of the next downturn. Plus, we now have tariffs against foreign steel. Without them, nobody would be bidding like crazy for an American steelmaker. In this new world, though, it makes perfect sense for Nippon Steel to buy U.S. Steel. There's virtually no overlap in their operations, and this combo would create a formidable competitor to the very strong, very aggressive Cleveland Cliffs, which has amalgamated lots of cast-off players into a single powerhouse. Cleveland Cliffs stock actually rallied nearly 10% today, not because it lost the bidding war, but because the whole industry benefits from a reevaluation by an independent arbiter called Nippon Steel. The steel companies are such a small part of what could have gone right this year if the FTC and the Justice Department hadn't been so dead set on blocking deals. The FTC tried to move heaven and earth to stop Microsoft from buying Activision Blizzard, a gaming company, even as that deal would have had minimal impact on the video game industry. Players, writers, doesn't matter. Unfortunately, FTC Chair Lina Khan believes that all mergers are inherently anti-competitive. If there isn't a true anti-competitive reason, it's almost as if she'll like, try to find one anyway. So she's trying to block pretty much every deal that comes across her desk. Now, fortunately, Microsoft had unlimited financial firepower to fight her in court. 
and she was soundly defeated. Unbelievable, <clears throat> unbelievable uh, writing by a judge about how wrong this was. Unfortunately, most companies do not have Microsoft's deep coffers, so they are very worried their deals will be blocked. So we have a, a whole industries that are in such bad need for consolidation, but they're afraid to. Concept DC has deterred many a potential merger, and that's kept stock valuations much lower than they should be, as the Nippon Steel U.S. Steel deal shows. Yep, Khan's been a one-woman wrecking crew for your stock portfolio, even as stocks have done quite well without deals. Although that's because we've seen the Magnificent Seven is the one we have to thank for a lot of that performance. At times, it feels like Concept DC doesn't care about antitrust law at all. She just wants to stay in the way of shareholders making money. Remember when they tried to block Amgen from buying Horizon Therapeutics, even though there was no overlap and no threat to competition, and Amgen agreed to do everything the FTC asked them to do? In the end, the FTC stopped trying to block the deal, although I think that's mainly because they sense that Amgen's big enough to fight them in court and win. It's amazing. Linacom wants to stop corporate consolidation, yet she's created a situation where only the largest, wealthiest companies can afford all the litigation that now comes with making acquisitions. What would happen if we didn't have such a hardline FTC, one that could still try to block the Nippon Steel U.S. Steel deal, even as there's no overlap and it could make the auto steel business far more competitive, potentially bring down and helping the biggest costs of the companies that make cars and trucks? I can see so many potential deals with a less hostile FTC. I could see Merck combining with Bristol-Myers to go up against J&J and Pfizer with this purchase of CGen in the very com- uh, competitive anti-cancer world. I can see somebody like Kraft Heinz merging with Hershey or General Mills, give them more bargaining power with the suppliers. There are so many biotech companies that need to be bought to fulfill their true potential because they don't have enough money to do so. But the chilling effect of FTC's attempt to block the Horizon deal makes it so only the largest companies are willing to risk acquiring. If you don't have the scale, you can't be expected to fight against the runaway regulatory freight train that is Lena Khan. FTC. Now, Abby just acquired two biotechs for $19 billion. I've... I'm presuming that Tom will try to block both of them. Why not allow Brown Foreman to buy the spirits business of Constellation Brands, which it may no longer need given their flagging sales? More on that later. In tech, there are so many enterprise software plays that can be bought by acquisitive companies trying to build competitive moats. Instead, the acquisitions fall to big private equity outfits like Tomo Brava and Insight, now clear like, like the Alaric deal that was announced this very morning. These private equity companies can have the run of the joint because they don't need to worry about antitrust scrutiny, unlike Adobe's failed attempt to buy Figma, which would have uh, given them a competitive advantage in the battle against the paid portion of Canva. That's the online graphic design platform. In fact, the deal would have been terrific for the consumer because it would allow Adobe to undercut Canva on price for its most sophisticated models and could have given investors, uh, well, could have given consumers a free tier to integrate with other Adobe products. Investors also know course, that the European regulators were against this one, too, though. We have so many medical device companies that are just begging to be merged. And they, they'd have then the scale to battle the larger players in the industry. As, as right now, they, they, they can't really compete. We have so many aerospace companies that need more scale to hold Boeing and Airbus accountable. It's all one way right now. We know that all entertainment companies are hurting. We need to let some of these companies combine unless they go under. And they will go under because some have very weak balance sheets. But it's nowhere near as dire as all the brick-and-mortar retailers that are hanging on for dear life as Amazon takes them on. Look, I could go on and on about the kinds of deals that should be allowed and what could be allowed and what won't be allowed. Mind you, I'm not challenging the regulators' hard line against airline mergers. There have been too many of those, and they've hurt the consumer. 
I'm not suggesting that Albertsons Kroger should be allowed unless SoftBank steps up and puts a lot of money behind the purchase of 400 stores to eliminate any overlap. It needs to be someone with deep pockets. Otherwise, those 400 spun-off stores might go under. That happened when Albertsons merged with Safeway with a promise to spin off stores, and the company that bought the spun-off stores quickly failed because it was underfunded. Bad outcome. What I am saying is that scale matters. If you don't allow smaller companies to gain scale by, say, letting Walgreens buy Rite Aid, we end up with a weak Walgreens and a bankrupt Rite Aid, a dominant Amazon that gobbles up the whole category. Yet no one ever talks about that. Again, a bad outcome. Now, we know Lena Khan seems to have plenty of support from President Biden, who used to brag about not caring about the stock market. But 58% of American households now own stocks in some shape or form. Maybe that's a big enough cohort for him to care about it ahead of Election Day. Here's the bottom line. When you see what Nippon Steel is willing to pay for U.S. Steel, it's crystal clear that our whole stock market would be worth far more. Far more in a world where the regulators were less hostile to takeovers. One way or another, I think that's where we're headed. The only question is, how long will it take? Let's go to Robert in New York. Robert. Hey, Jim, I must say you're the best stock advisor in the country. I'm going to have the best Christmas ever because of your guidance. That's you are really one. kind. You are really no, kind to say that. absolutely true, Jim. Thank but with you. that, you've done this for everybody. I could put a list of stocks that you've given that have done phenomenal. You're, you and the ones you said pull out, people have. Okay? Thank but anyway, you. this is a stock that the analysts love. It's up 52% this year. And I want to know if you think it's getting a little frothy. I want to know if you are into, into it. I think Sasan Kadarzi is doing an amazing job. Do I think the stock is maybe 5 to 8% ahead of itself? Yes, that makes sense. Do I think it could come in in January when we start having some real capital gains taken? Yes. That's why I wouldn't buy it until January when we see the true colors of a lot of stocks. Let's go to William in Texas. William. Uh, hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Your staff is great. They are I terrific. They are. I had uh, 300 shares of Uber with a cost base of 36 when it ran up last week, I sold 200 of it and bought 300 of Verizon for the juicy 7% dividend. I don't know what to do with the other 100 of the Uber. Do I hold it or should I sell it? I want you to hold it. I think Uber's doing remarkably. It's one of the big winners of the companies that have come public in the last few years. One of the very few big winners. And congratulations to you for buying some Uber, making such big money, and then rolling into something that can give you some good income. All right, now that we know what Nippon Steel is willing to pay for U.S. Steel, I think it's pretty clear that the entire stock market could be worth a heck of a lot more if our regulators weren't so hostile to takeover deals. Most of the gains have been in the Magnificent Seven. On Man Tonight, VF Corp is the latest victim of a cybersecurity act that's hindered its operations. So I'm going to one of the best in the space, Palo Alto Networks, to get a sense of what this attack means and how we can combat these in the future. Then, last week, we got a call on Brown Foreman, and close viewers may have been surprised by my hesitation. I'm sharing some important data on the alcohol companies and giving an update on where I stand with some of the market's biggest names. And last month, we created a Mad Money ETF based on the companies whose executives met with President Xi during his big dinner in San Francisco. So how is this mock ETF fared? I'm providing an update, and it's a positive one. So stay with Kramer. Kramer. 
Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Cramer on X. Have a question? Tweet Cramer. Hashtag Mad Mentions. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I guess you could say it's starting to feel like deja vu all over again with these cyber attacks. VF Corp's the most recent victim, and its stock plunged nearly 8% today in response. It was making a comeback. Wow. Today's hack comes right as the new SEC rules go into effect. Rules that say companies need to disclose within four days of finding out that they had a material data breach. Whenever I see this stuff in the headline, I immediately think of Kramer, Fave, Palo Alto Networks, the best of breed cybersecurity firm with a stock that's been a huge winner for my child, which are some more than 120% year to date. While the stock got hit right after Palo Alto reported last month, we had CEO Nikesh Arora on the show that same night. He told us a compelling story. I hope you listen, because the stock's now rallied 27% from that post-quarter low. Now, we need to figure out how these new SEC rules will impact the industry. So let's check in once again with the source, with Nikesh Arora, the straight-shooting chairman and CEO of Palo Alto Networks, to get a better view of the situation. Mr. Arora, welcome back to Man Money. Hey, Jim. How are you? Thank you for having me. Of course. The catch. Now, look, these rules are very significant. There's no more dodging them. You only have a certain number of days. What will it do to the companies that get hacked? Well, look, Jim, we've talked about this, and I said to you last time we talked, that the amount of cyber activity from the adversaries continues to go up. And part of it is, you know, it's like it's happening anyway, but now we're hearing more and more about it because these rules are requiring people to disclose. The challenge, as you and I have talked about, is 
you've got to disclose before you have a full handle on what's going on. And even if the one today, if you look at the disclosure, it's still not clear what actually is going down, but it's clear they've reported they've had a problem, it's deemed material by them, and they're still working on solving the problem. I think that we need to split this in two parts, the principle of it and the impact and the specifics and tactics. At a very principle level, you cannot hide. You have to protect your infrastructure against future cyber attacks and everybody will be held accountable. The board, the CEO, the chief security officer, the chief technology officer, there is nowhere to hide because all of us rely on cyber or technology to deliver our capabilities and services. So this has become the number one enterprise risk of all time. And you as a CEO, you as a board member have to make sure you understand the risk, you understand the state of your company vis-a-vis -vis that risk, and you understand what mitigation or remediation plans are in place to make sure things are okay. On a, on a tactical specific level, there's a whole bunch of stuff that still needs to be worked out. Well, Nikesh, when I see that the company itself, the target, gets to determine the materiality, I have to say to myself, hey, listen, let's not disclose this. It's hardly material. And then see if I can get away with it. Well, I'm not sure it's quite as easy as that, Jim, because when you have to disclose it, you actually don't even know the extent of it. So it's very hard to assess materiality. And if you've got a good lawyer, he's going to tell you to risk manage yourself and make sure you disclose this, lest it turn into something bigger. And then you get held accountable post-fact that you didn't disclose it was material. So I think it works both ways. I think you are more than likely to report it because it could turn into something bigger and material, which is often the case with cyber attacks. As you, know, you might have seen that you know, we have some other situations going on where there's no ransom demand being made, but the company's aware that they've been breached and working hard to fix it. Well, what are we supposed to do? You yourself have said one of the great businesses of all time is this you know, cyber ransom business to the point where one of these attackers actually let the SEC know that the, the target's taking too long to respond. Yes. Yes. And I think what we are supposed to do is not change. We're supposed to make sure we build good infrastructure. We're supposed to make sure we protect our infrastructure. And the more our company relies on technology, it's our job as CEOs and leaders to make sure we understand the risk associated with it. Now, Jim, this year has been a phenomenal year for cybersecurity stocks, and I think it's just beginning. I think we're gonna see more and more of this activity come 2024. I think you'll see more 8Ks filed. You'll see more and more conversation around it. And like I said, it's still the most profitable business with least amount of convictions in the world. So we haven't done anything to significantly impact the bad actors and try to fix this problem. We just have to make sure we're safer and more secure in each of our companies. Well, did Clorox call you? Did VF call you? Did, did any of these guys call you, MGM call you and say, give us a hand here? Well, Jim, we do get, uh, you know, what we did uh, last quarter is in anticipation of this, we wrote to our top 1,500 customers and offered to help them for free. So we've gone ahead and called 15 of our customers who are our longstanding Palo Alto customers saying, listen, you have been a loyal customer of Palo Alto. We understand these rules are coming into place. We'd like to offer you a $0 retainer in case you get breached so we can come in and jump in and help you. Of the customers who've responded, half of them have taken us upon our offer. So all I can say is that our customers are aware that we're standing by to help them. We actually step up and help them. We wanted to make sure this was not an economic event. They didn't have to think about it. And, you know, we'll be there when our customers need us. I can't specifically, obviously, tell you who called me or didn't call me. Right. Well, I wonder whether Palo Alto is in a good seal, good housekeeping seal of approval, something like this. Cyber criminals could be like car thieves. They survey a parking lot and just go after the ones with open doors, skip those with locked doors. Is it being a, a, a locked door if you hire Palo Alto? 
Of course, Jim, look, we have our capabilities, we have our products that we put into place, they are next generation products, whether it's our cloud security portfolio, our network security portfolio, our most recent AI-based SOC management portfolio. We are in there because we are promising our customers we can help them re remediate their security issues. We can put a blanket around their infrastructure to make sure it stays protected. So yes, of course, you want the next generation set of products in your infrastructure. As I said, there's a trillion dollars of embedded cybersecurity plant out there in the world, which will have to go through a refurbishment over the next five years. Now, I, I want to try to distinguish. There are bad guys who are very sophisticated, hit MGM, maybe hit VF, uh, hit Cross. And then we had uh, Gina Raimondo on recently, Commerce Secretary, and she says, look, they, they meet with the Chinese, they have them over for dinner, it looks really great, and the hacking has only gotten worse from China. Which of the two we should be worried about, the bad guys or the Chinese? I think we have to separate uh, nation state activity from individual hacker activity. There's a lot of self-formed groups out there who have been formed because of the upsize, upside in going out there and doing ransomware and hacking, and because of the easy availability of crypto where we can transact with crypto and there's a lot more anonymity than used to be in the past. So I think there's a set of factors which have made this a very profitable enterprise for people who have hacking skills around the world. And of course, the fact that there's a lot of old infrastructure out there where we're building our technology on and couple of the fact that the conviction rates are low. So I don't think this is a nation state issue as much as this is a individual groups of ransomware threat actors. Now some of them are state, uh, I, I'd say sponsored or state okay, but I don't think this is this ransomware activity is a nation state activity. It's more of a individual actor, individual group activity. How many of these could be stopped by just the company saying, listen to the workforces, don't surrender anything unless it's from a certain guy, you know, with a certain code, and just stop trying to help employees, other employees, because they may be bad actors, they may be imitated. Jim, it's very hard to stop this by trying and talk to every individual in your organization and trying to get them to have good hygiene. It's like trying to regulate you know, traffic by telling everybody to drive carefully. So it doesn't happen, there always will be bad bad things that happen because somebody has been marginally sloppy or somebody didn't pay attention at the moment in time. As, as we like to say, you know, we have to be right 100% of the time. They only have to be right once, the bad actors. So the right way to do it is to collect all this data, watch all the activity in the enterprise, and be able to watch you know, anomalous, anomalous behavior and say, wait, that doesn't look normal. Let me stop it right away. Now for that, you have to have a very good understanding of what normal looks like to be able to stop the anomalous behavior. That can only be done by using AI. This is something we've talked about. This is something Well, you're the largest the repository of cybersecurity data. So you should be able to measure what anybody says versus the anomaly. And you know, Jim, I've said to you that our biggest pipeline is in our SOC business, our product XIM. It's got lots and lots of interest because people understand this is a problem that needs to be solved there's one choice to replace everything in your infrastructure and try and get good hygiene. The other option is to go deploy an AI-based capability that sits on top of your existing infrastructure and helps protect you whilst in the back end you're continuing to upgrade your capability. So I think that's the only way out in the industry. We're all going to have to deploy some sort of AI blanket that runs across our data, finds these anomalous situations, blocks them, makes it okay for us to be able to run our businesses. So I think that's where the world is going. I think 24 portends to be as good a year, if not, better from a demand perspective for cybersecurity. Incredible, because you already say that you only have 3.5% of the share. Nikesh Aurora, Chairman CEO of Palo Alto Networks, thank you for explaining this stuff to us. It's really important.
Thank you, Jim. Happy holidays. Same to you. Mayor Bunny's back here for the break. Coming up, is this cohort losing its punch? Kramer mixes it up with a segment that wants its fizz back. Next. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Responsive bunch here. So last Friday, we got this call from Hugo in Ohio who asked about Brown Foreman, the liquor company best known as the parent of Jack Daniels, Tennessee whiskey, a Woodford Reserve bourbon, hard to tequila, among others. I told him the truth. Brown liquors are in decline in this country for the first time in ages, and you do not want exposure to this part of the industry. Now, that may have caught you by surprise. Because historically, I've been a huge fan of the stock of Brown Foreman until a few years ago. Its stock was a great long-term performer. But it's just like I said. Brown liquors have gone out of style. So why the heck would you want to bet on something that's not working? The truth is, there's been a major shakeup in the alcohol business, something I know directly because my wife has her own mezcal brand. You might say that's anecdotal evidence. Why don't we just be empirical? When Brown Foreman reported on December 6th, both their sales and earnings came in a bit light. And even worse, management slashed its full-year fiscal forecast. Previously, they were projecting 5 to 7% organic growth. Now they're saying it'll be 3 to 5%. That's a big, big decline. And in response, the stock correctly dropped 10% in a single session. It's rebounded a bit from those lows, but I, I just see that as a chance to ring the register. So why is Brown Foreman struggling? Well, the U.S. business is the problem. With organic net sales down 5% in the six months ended October, their developed international markets aren't doing that great either. They're down 2% over the same period. Only in emerging markets are they doing well, and they're up 19%, which is pretty impressive. Now, the company line currently is that they're doing badly in America right now because they did so well last year, leaving customers with too much inventory. Look, maybe that's having some impact, but when you look at Brown Foreman's categories, it's not the sales that worry me. It's the volume numbers. In the first half of their fiscal year, overall shipments were down 7%. Jack Daniels' shipments were down 10%. Worrisome. And it's not just Brown Foreman. About a month ago after they reported, we heard something worrisome from Diageo. The parent of Johnny Walker Scotch, Captain Morgan Rum, Smirnoff Vodka, Guinness Beer, and many other alcohol brands. On November 10, Diageo issued an operating profit warning saying that they're getting killed in Latin America and the Caribbean as consumers trade down to cheaper brands. Investors clearly don't believe the problems isolated in that region, though, which is why that stock's down nearly 10% since then. During a period where the S&P 500 has rallied more than 9%, pretty stark. No wonder Brown Foreman and Diageo are down 11 and 19% for the year, respectively. At these levels, value investors are starting to get intrigued. I get that. But I got to tell you, the stocks are coming down because the liquor industry has changed. It's not mismarked. Changed for the worse. And these two companies are on the losing end of it. First, it's becoming clearer and clearer that younger people are simply less interested in drinking alcohol than in previous generations. According to a Gallup poll from August, the coveted 18 to 34-year-old demographic, of course, under 21 is illegal in this country, has seen a huge decline, huge decline in alcohol consumption. And yes, we've got, we've got, we've got to assume this survey includes underage drinking, given that they cut it off well below the drinking age. 20 years ago, Young adults were the heaviest drinkers in America. Now their drinking habits are closer to the 55 and over demo. There's also been a huge decline in regular drinking among the 18 to 34 group. 
And even the ones who do drink tend to drink less on average. 3.6 drinks per week, down from 4.5 a decade ago. And get this, 5.2 20 years ago. Second, the rise of legal marijuana at the state level has created a major headwind for the alcohol industry. Chidi Cowan just put out this terrific note on Friday titled, Cannabis Beats Booze, pointing out that in states where weed is legal, alcohol sales growth has underperformed by 100 to 150 basis points. Is this Harold and Kumar preventing uh, liver disease? Hmm. Maybe Cheech and Chong stop drunk driving? Possibilities are endless. Especially among younger adults, T.D. Cowan has found that cannabis is doing a much better job of retaining customers, while alcohol category retention has been awful. Meanwhile, two-thirds of people who smoke weed told them that they also cut back on drinking. That's the reality. Third, for years, the alcohol companies adopted this premiumization strategy, raising prices and raising prices and raising prices for higher-end liquors. But these have really been under pressure lately. They raise prices too much. Consumers are now trading down aggressively. Finally, let's not forget about these new GLP-1 weight loss drugs that reduce your craving for snacks. They also seem to reduce your craving for booze, although they haven't been approved for that. If there's a drug that can curb alcoholism, it's obviously real bad news for liquor companies. At this point, we don't have definitive proof that these drugs can do that. But as more and more people take them, we'll find out. We do know this. Alcohol is pure sugar and a surefire way to put on weight. So even without tests, if liquor tastes like water in this new regimen, why add the calories when you can drink something that's far, you know, that's got far fewer calories? Water. Those are four serious worries. So with that in mind, are there any alcohol stocks I'm willing to endorse? Actually, yes. For one, we still own Constellation Brands, STZ for the Chapel Trust, which you can follow by joining the investing club. Now, don't forget, tomorrow we have a meeting at noon. Constellation's key subcategory is Mexican beer. And this is one of the few areas that's still growing. In its most recent quarter, the company's beer business had 12% net sales growth, 7.9% depletions growth, 8.7% shipments growth. That's clearly, that's fantastic. Clearly, people still love their Corona, Modelo, and Pacifico. Hey, by the way, the latter was up 15%. There are plenty of other reasons to like Constellation, including the presence of a very smart activist firm, Elliott Management, and the recent announcement of a $2 billion buyback. But at the end of the day, I like Constellation because I believe in their beer business. While brown liquors are getting killed, the clears aren't doing much better. Beer's doing fine. That's why Molson Coors has rallied more than 20% for the year. Hey, speaking of Molson Coors, even though even they seem to be acknowledging the trend of less drinking, you know what? Earlier this year, they launched Peroni 0.0, a non-alcoholic version of the Italian beer brand. And the U.S. and recently management's been uh, touting the launch of non-alcoholic version of Blue Moon, just in time for dry January. Can you believe a beer company celebrating dry January? A little counterintuitive. Now, there's another popular strength here, agave spirits meaning tequila and mezcal, especially the premium brands. That's why my wife launched a premium brand mezcal, Fosforo. We know tequila overtook whiskey as the second most valuable spirit category in the U.S. last week. It should overtake vodka to become the top spirit category either this year or next. During the pandemic, tequila sales had a compound annual growth rate of 20.7%, compared to 6.7% for the overall alcohol industry. Unfortunately, there aren't really any pure play tequila or mezcal stocks. Diageo, for example, is doing well with tequila brands like Casamigos, but that's just one pocket of strength and an overall business is struggling to grow. So let me give you the bottom line here. Many liquor companies are struggling to grow right now, hence the weakness in Brown Foreman and Diageo. But even after these declines, I can't bring myself to say that their stocks are worth buying because they're right in the crosshairs of multiple negative secular trends. Well, these are some subcategories of the booze business that work. There are some, like Mexican beer or agave spirits. The alcohol industry is a much tougher place than it used to be, and it could be getting worse now that dry January beckons. Hey, let's take calls. Let's go to Brett, New York. Brett. 
Mr. Kramer, how you doing? I'm doing well, Brett. Tell me how you're doing. Okay, we got a, we got a hometown favorite here. We got Shake Shack. Um, the the earnings look like they're growing. Quarter four forecast looks strong. 300 locations. They look like they're expanding out of the Northeast region. Um, do you think this will become a national brand and a competitor to major fast food brands? Yes, I do, and I think they're going to have a new CEO. I think is that exactly going to be that person's goal. The stock has not done much over many years. That could change with this new CEO. Let's go to Trey in Texas. Trey. Jim, my wife scolded me last night, as she often does when I'm doing laundry. Don't wash this on hot. Please don't get fabric softener, etc. I couldn't help but chuckle because she had on a top I washed with the dog blankets. But thanks to Lysol laundry sanitizer in every load, she'll never know. I think the success of this new product is being overlooked and Clorox is undervalued. What are your thoughts? Well, I think that Clorox was hurt by that hack. We're going to have more. You know, look, hacking is just a state of the art. But I will tell you, I think you're right. And why is your wife complaining if you do the wash? When I do the wash, it's like the greatest day in my life. Uh, well, let's just put it this way. It works well. Okay. It's a, it's a turn off. I don't know. Look, the alcohol industry is in a tough place right now, thanks to several negative secular trends. Whoa. And even though the stocks of these liquor companies have come down a lot, you know, I can't recommend them right here. Wow, is there a lot more mad money in? We propose an ETF based on the companies that could work. Should there be a thaw in relations between the U.S. and China? Spoiler alert. This basket of stocks trounced the S&P. I'm reviewing the names and giving you an update. Then today we got some data out of the Federal Reserve that showed record levels of stock ownership in the U.S. So what caused such a jump? I'll give you my take. It's a little explosive. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Just over a month ago, when Chinese President Xi Jinping paid a visit to the United States in San Francisco, I created a list of stocks that could roar if there's a thaw in relations between the U.S. and China, including the 17 companies whose executives met with Xi at this big gala dinner. I thought the companies sitting around that table could make for a good ETF. Sure enough, barely more than a month later, and our dinner with Xi ETF is up just under 10 percent, trouncing the S&P up just 5 percent over the same period. In fact, 14 of the 17 stocks in our she dinner basket are up since we created the group. It's a lot better than a lot of ETFs that have been created. Tonight, I want to go through some of the biggest winners from our China Thaw ETF and why I think it's worth sticking with them if you're betting on a potential detente between government and the Chinese. Two of the top three performers, the best and the third best, are private equity firms. KKR is the top performer, up 26% in the past uh, month. Blackstone's uh, in third place, up over 20%. Private equity is having a big moment right now because these firms benefit enormously from lower interest rates. Their core business was originally doing leveraged buyouts, so the cost of borrowing money has a huge impact on their earnings. At the same time, the Linicon's militant FTC seems humble after losing its fight to block Microsoft's acquisition of Activision. So there's a sense that maybe they won't try to block as many deals, including private equity deals. Just this morning, for example, we learned that Alaric's a data analytics play that we've liked, is being bought by a pair of private equity firms for more than $4 billion. I suspect that will get the blessing because, well, the acquirers, they're not, pro- they're not public. They're private. Now, both KKR and Blackstone are active in China, and their ability to do business there partially depends on our government's relationship with their government. 
KKR is red hot right now. Two research firms have named it a top pick for 2024 just this past week. As for Blackstone, while the stock was in the penalty box for a while because of its exposure to the real estate industry, that's no longer a problem now that interest rates have peaked and buyers are piling back in. I have one more idea if you want a private equity firm with China exposure, and that's an alpha called General Atlantic, which looks to be coming public next. General Atlantic's made tremendous amounts of inroads in China, including a major investment in TikTok, which your kids are probably addicted to. So watch out for that one. I bet it will be a great deal for the buyers. The second best performer from my dinner with Xi Jinping ETF over the past month has been Boeing, which makes perfect sense because whenever China wants to buddy up to us, they buy aircraft. Boeing's been a mess in recent years, but there are only two large-scale manufacturers of commercial aircraft on Earth. Boeing's one of them. Right now, they want to resume deliveries of the 737 MAX to China. And while that hasn't happened yet, it's certainly a possibility. Even without a direct China boost, Boeing's stock has roared. In fact, it's only had three down days in the last 21 sessions. It's up more than 25% since we created the China Winners ETF. The analysts have been recommending this one like crazy for the same reason, that I like it. Boeing's finally getting over its supply chain problems, and there's tremendous demand all over the world. If China lets them start delivering 737 Maxes again, the stock will continue to roar. Either way, I bet it's got more room to run. In fourth place, there's Broadcom, the maker of semiconductors and increasingly software, which we own for the Chapel Trust. Frankly, this one's my favorite name in our dinner with Xi Basket because it's a great example of an American company that benefits from improved relations with China. See, for some 18 months or so, Broadcom had been looking to close on its huge acquisition of VMware, a software company, a deal that will boost their exposure to software, especially in the coveted data center. At the time of Xi's visit, Broadcom received every clearance that it needed for this transaction, except from the Chinese regulators who are holding things up. Less than a week later, though, after CEO Hock Tan went to President Xi's gala dinner, that approval finally came through and Broadcom closed its acquisition on VMware the next day, finding how things work. Although, to be fair, Tan had told us before the dinner to expect approval very soon. And look, it's not just the VMware deal that Broadcom reported a great quarter with solid guidance for 2024, which matters more. And now the stock's been up for eight trading days in a row. Still, Broadcom's one of the least picked over AI beneficiaries, and now it has an even stronger position with VMware in the fold. Now, full disclosure, after the stock gained nearly 20% last week, we made a small trim of our position for the Chapel Trust. But that's not because we like Broadcom any less. It's just prudent portfolio management, as we'll explain tomorrow at our investment club meeting. See, you have to prune some of your winners or else they'll get too big. Apart from these top four performers, when you look at the other names in our Genoa Xi ETF that are up double digits, a couple of them report this week. Think FedEx and Nike. FedEx has a large business transporting goods from China. Nike relies on China for its manufacturing. It's also a major market for them, counting for 13% of the company's sales, a much larger chunk of its growth. Let's see what both have to say about China when they report over the next two days. I like both stocks ahead of their quarters. Then there's BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, which is up about 11% in the past month. If you feel good about stocks as an asset class going into 2024, like I do, then you should feel good about BlackRock, too. Finally, I want to call out Thermo Fisher Scientific, TMO, with its stock up 11% in a month. As with the other arms dealers to the life sciences industry, like Danaher, which we own for the Travel Trust, Thermo Fisher is getting some major lift here. Now that its customers are finished clearing out that excess inventory, a process that took more than a year 
Better relations with China means they can move more merchandise in China, which is a really important market for them. In the end, we've had a real great start for the dinner with Xi ETF. But it's important to remember the core thesis for this group. If our country does indeed manage to improve relations with China, I think the best way to play that idea is with the U.S. companies that do business over there, rather than with Chinese companies whose shares trade over here. Remember, Chinese stocks that trade in America tend to be a total crapshoot. And that's putting it generously. So the bottom line, if you want to bet on China, stick with the winning components in our dinner with Xi Jinping ETF. These are blue chip stocks that do better if the Chinese government comes around. But even if nothing changes on the China front, they've still got a lot going for them. It's a high quality group of companies that sat around that table. And China's just the kicker. Bet money's back after the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls. And the sky's the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. Crazy round. Time for Africa. Why don't you say in the Star Set up you explain this? Explain this. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski Dad, time for the lightning round. Kramer's everybody. It's time with Sammy in New York. Sammy. Yes, sir. Yeah. So I started in August picking up shares of Snapchat for my two twins. Two twins. Uh, and I'm wondering. I'm thinking that it's going to go back up to its all-time Oh, uh, now, come on. It has had such a big run. I think we got to take some off the table. I would be remiss up 90% if you didn't take some, please. Let's go to Andrew in Georgia. Andrew. What's going on, Mr. Kramer? How you doing? I'm doing well. How about you, Andrew? I'm doing very well. I'm sorry if I sound a little out of breath right now. I'm on a run right now. Um, my question, really? Yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. So I'm thinking about opening a position in Salesforce. I'm wondering. Well, it's by, it's a 52 week high. I think we ought to wait for a little bit of dip. I'm trying to keep up with you, but it's really starting to get to me. Let's wait a couple of points down and then we'll feel better. Whew. Marty in Michigan. Marty. Hey, Jim. Love the show. Been watching you a long time. First time caller. I'm wondering about Prudential. I'm up on it. Should I hang on? Yeah, you should. I mean, it's still got a 4.85% yield now. What's amazing, it was upgraded today, and yet it's still only up 3% for the year. I think you've got a keeper. I was surprised to see an upgrade because a lot of people worried about the real estate exposure. I'm not. Let's go to Dave in California. Dave. Hey, Jim. Looking at Samsara, uh, the stock symbol is IOT. Wondering what you think of that for a future trade. We think that they do great stuff. We've had them on. They do a lot of good monitoring. Again, a monitoring company with $18 billion market cap. I think you could say, wow, it's really a candidate to be acquired if it doesn't keep going higher. Let's go to Jay, if they would let it. Let's go to Jay in Illinois. Jay. Hey, Jim. Uh, Long-time listener, first-time caller. But uh, I had a question on Devon Energy. Okay. Okay, I'm using Carly Garner's work. She called the bottom at 74 oil. It now seems to be going up. That would mean that you could indeed buy Devon. I've not recommended that stock in a long time. Let's go to Sal in New York. Sal. Jim, how are you? I'm doing well. How about you, Sal? Very good. You guys got a big game tonight, man. I think Jalen goes for a cool 300. Well, that would be unbelievable. That'd be like, as we know, that would be like Walter Payton when he just got 140, broke 200 yards. What's going on? I agree. All right. The stock you're calling about is Royalty Pharma. 
I like Quality Farm. You know, every time they do a deal, they get a little income from it, but it, people have not liked it. Let's go buy some Realty Farm. It is way too cheap. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by Charles Schwab. Coming up, in praise of the home gamer, these numbers suggest that families are taking charge of their financial future, and Kramer is pumped. More Mad Money is next. some astounding numbers from the Federal Reserve just now that show more people own stocks than ever before. 58% of U.S. households. In fact, according to the Wall Street Journal, take their take on this data, individual stocks have become a much bigger focus. 21% of families own individual stocks, well above 2019 when it was only 15%. Largest increase on record. Upper middle class people recorded the biggest jump, but younger people took the plunge too, creating what the journal called a whole new cohort of investors. First, before I go on, I am thrilled about this. As an advocate of both S&P 500 index funds and individual stocks, this is a major change, and not one I expected. Of course, some caveats. These stats are from 2022, before the Fed raised interest rates relentlessly. I'm sure some people took the chance to sell stocks and buy CDs, or maybe park money in high-yielding funds. Also, we don't know how much of this came from the government's dispersal of cash during COVID to keep the economy going. I sense a lot of that money ended up in the stock market from younger people just out of college, especially the ones with student loans who got a multi-year break on repaying them. In other words, a thrice-time windfall, two COVID special payments, and no interest on student loans, coupled with incredibly low interest rates, may have created a level of stock buying that very few saw coming. GameStop and the search for the next GameStop attracted a host of young people to the market, and perhaps subsequently they stayed in it. Many may have joined the legion of larger and older investors hanging on to stocks through thick and thin. Now, don't get me wrong, I love index funds. I've repeatedly said that they should be the bedrock of your portfolio. But there wouldn't be much of a show if all I did was reiterate every single night that I like index funds. I address those who want to own individual stocks, despite an industry bent on putting you in index funds and ETFs and screaming about the dangers of single stock ownership. I know people will pick stocks no matter what. I'm just trying to make you better at using the same disciplines that big institutions use. That's something we demonstrate when we constantly the CNBC Investing Club, which meets tomorrow at noon. Empirically, it's time for these single stock risk hawkers and ETF creators, usually amalgamating whatever's hot, to recognize that six of the greatest stocks of the year, the Magnificent Seven, Alphabet, Apple, Amazon, Meta, Microsoft, and Tesla, were all incredibly retail-oriented names. These were well-known to anyone who had a computer, anyone had a cell phone, which is probably a huge percentage of the country. NVIDIA is not really a retail name, but it did have a retail following among people who play video games. And, of course, I did everything in my power to recommend it, even renaming my dog NVIDIA. I know I had an impact on this. I'm darn proud of it. If the Magnificent Seven were almost all retail names, then why the heck did so many big institutions avoid them or even suggest trading around them endlessly, flitting in and flitting out repeatedly? The institutional brokerage houses saved their most important, almost scathing criticism for the biggest and most consumer-oriented company of all, Apple. They did institutional investors no favors. I bet if we saw what these new folks owned, it'd be filled with the Magnificent Seven, and rightly so. All seven were operating well above the average stock, well above, say, most of the SP 500. The individual's refusal to accept average, I think, is what kept people in these great stocks. 
Why sell the best performing stocks of all time? Unless you got some, of course, negative Wall Street research, which these people mostly, thank heavens, had no access to. I think it's high time that brokerages of all stripes recognize that individual investors are smarter than they think, smarter even than most institutions. The financial industry is full of contempt and criticism for people who try to manage their own money. Sure, not everyone's Warren Buffett. Hey, but get this. A good deal of Buffett's performance in recent years came from none other than Apple, the most obvious retail stock out there. I say let's cheer these investors who run the gauntlet of criticism and fear instilled by Wall Street. And for once, listen to what they have to say for heaven's sake, as I do every night here. Maybe the critics could learn a thing or two about stock picking. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you. Radio Mad Money, I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warn its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash disclaimer. At Founders Brewing Company, we set out to create a beer that lets you embrace the unconventional. Mortal Bloom is a radiantly beautiful, hazy IPA that will wrap your taste buds with intense citrus and tropical notes of pineapple and mango. Coming in at 6.2% ABV with big aromatics and no bitterness, it's the perfect beer, if we do say so ourselves. Visit foundersbrewing.com to find Mortal Bloom Hazy IPA.